Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you, Peter. No offense to Gerard Arpey or Gary Kelly, but I don't like that comparison much. <clears throat> Start getting compared to the airline industry. That's not a good thing, is it? I uh, actually appreciate, Peter, you doing that introduction. After what we have put you through over the last few months, I, I wasn't sure you would ever speak to us again. <clears throat> we uh, made our announcement that we were moving the headquarters to Dallas and Literally that afternoon, Peter Beck's company got a call from us, and we just had a small request from him. We asked him to, if he could, rehab 17 floors of prime real estate in downtown Dallas and build a really, really nice cafeteria, and then to accommodate in our lobby this 25-foot statue of a big naked guy holding telephone cables and lightning bolts used to sit on the skyline of New York City. That, that statue did, not me. <laughs> and then we gave him one other little condition. We said, if you could get that done in about 180 days, we'd appreciate it, right? And uh, Peter didn't blink. He kind of dog-cussed me for a little bit, but I don't think he ever blinked, and you got it done. And i got to tell you, we're really, really proud of what you've, you've produced for us. We have a world-class headquarter building here. It's uh, it's really nice. If you haven't been there, I would encourage you to come by and at least see the lobby and, and what Peter and his team have done there. It's, it's very impressive. <clears throat> Excuse me. What I thought we would talk about this afternoon is, is use my time to talk about global competition, particularly in the context of this group, and where does the U.S. stack up as we think in terms of global competition and, and really ask the fundamental question, does it matter how we stack up? from a global competitive environment. You know, most of us in this room, I think, fully recognize that the U.S. right now is in the middle of a bruising battle with the rest of the world. And, and it's a competition for a couple of things. It's a competition for capital, and it's a competition for jobs and job creation. And I, I think it's important that we not fool ourselves, that if we cannot attract capital to this country, then we cannot continue to create jobs in this country. I think it's a real simple formula. I don't think it's that difficult. And if you don't have jobs, you will not have prosperity. And so today, I, the U.S. continues to be, far and away, the world's leading economy. We represent about 20% of the world's GDP. Now you go back 10 years, that number was 23% of global GDP. And in my business, we call that market share. And the U.S. Uh, presently is losing market share. Uh, when we lose market share at AT&T, our first question generally is, who are we losing it to? And when you look at it on a global standpoint, who we're losing market share to is readily obvious, right? We're losing it to the emerging markets. Specifically, we're losing it to China and to India and to Brazil. In the span of a decade, China has doubled its share of global GDP, almost doubled it, They've gone from 7% to 12%, and they are now the world's second largest economy. 
That's happened in a very short period of time. And countries like China are running rather large trade surpluses. They export a whole lot more than they import. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the United States, where we import a whole lot more than we export. And so you combine a trade deficit with a, a rather substantial and growing U.S. fiscal deficit, a growing tax burden, and as a result of that, a weakening currency, except for the last few days. I guess it hurts when Greece threatens to default on their currency. You put all those together, and I think what we have is a recipe for a rather mediocre economic performance for a long period of time. And so one just has to stop and ask, is this economic trajectory temporary, or are we kind of at a new baseline, at a new level, a new normal, if you will? And I think the answer to that question, while it's, it's fairly complex, the answer, though, is it depends, right? And it depends on how we as a country and from a policy standpoint, how do we respond to the competitive environment we are in? And it is a competitive environment that we're in. You know, do we take deliberate steps to make the U.S. more attractive for capital inflows than other countries? Do we maintain policies that encourage technological innovation and productivity here, here in this country? And do we make step change improvements, not, not minor, but step change improvements in our educational system that allow us to have a workforce that is competitive and actually is a competitive advantage versus other countries in the world? So I'll just hit those each very briefly, and then we'll, we'll take time for questions. But I'll start with the first, and that is how do we make the U.S more attractive for capital investment. I think that is really at the core of most of this. You know, markets, we all know this, but these markets are global. And the capital markets are very, very efficient. And this capital freely flows through the returns of the best, right? I mean, it's a real simple equation. I'll give you one example that is close to home with me. And I know a lot of our Alcatel-Lucent people are here, and they'll appreciate this. But each year, AT&T, we, we spend a lot of money in capital. We invest a tremendous amount every year. And in fact, in 2010, we'll invest somewhere between 18 to 19 billion dollars. That's probably going to be more than any other company invests in the United States this year. Uh, we don't know that for certain yet, but uh, historically that has been the case. And in, we're taking it up this year, so we expect it will be as, as much as anybody invests in the U.S. this year. The lion's share of that capital investment is going to go to building out our next generation mobile broadband network. And it's going to be the network that supports things like the iPhone, and you've read about the iPad and, and the Android devices. You got a free Android device this last week. You broke my heart with that, Lucy. <clears throat> but we just recently, in fact, last week, we announced our vendor selection for who is going to help us build this next generation mobile broadband network. And it was a really big deal. It was a major award. Alcatel-Lucent was a big recipient of that award. But when we look out across the panorama of suppliers, there are really only four suppliers that are viable candidates for supplying a network, a mobile broadband network. They're Nokia, which is a Finnish company, a company called Huawei, which is a Chinese company, our friends at Alcatel-Lucent, they're a French company, and Ericsson, <clears throat> which is a Swedish company. Now, you notice anything unique about that list of companies? <laughs> Not one of them is headquartered in the United States. And, and I think you have to pause and consider that for a moment. The companies that are helping us 
build our next generation mobile broadband network. Every single one of them are based outside the United States. And if you reflect back on the last decade, the one we just exited, the 2000s, you know, we, we spent a fortune building out the broadband networks in this country. <clears throat> and it served as a huge competitive stimulative for the U.S. economy. This decade, starting in 2010, this decade will be spent building out the mobile broadband networks. And without these networks, make no mistake about it, we in the U.S. are not competitive with the rest of the globe. And all the gear that's going inside these networks is being developed and produced outside the United States. And I, you just ask, why is that? Why is it that the U.S. is leading the world in demand for mobile broadband? Nobody's even close. But the equipment suppliers are exclusively outside the United States. And, and I don't think that's a simple question to answer, but the reality is that over the years our policies have had an effect of discouraging companies to locate in the United States and to manufacture here in the United States. And, for example, if you just look at the, the corporate tax rate for the 30 countries in the OECD, the average tax rate is 26%. The United States has the second highest corporate tax rate in the OECD behind Japan at 39%. 39 compared to the average of 26%. I think it's difficult to make a, a case that those conditions are conducive for bringing companies to the United States of America. The U.S. Treasury, U.S. Treasury Department estimates that a country with a one percentage point lower tax than its competitors can attract 3% more capital. One percent lower tax attracts 3% more capital. 39% versus 26%. You can do the math. I don't think you have to be a, a mathematical genius to, to figure out the implications of that to capital formation and attracting capital to the United States. But the bottom line is the global competition for capital and the jobs that go with that capital, American companies, workers, and all the communities, were at a competitive disadvantage. I mean, I think that's just that's a, a factual statement. I don't think it's just our industry that's impacted. Every company in America is, is impacted by this one way or another. And, and I think this is a very important point to emphasize. This is not a partisan issue. This issue has been with us for a while. It, it spreads across many administrations and it spreads across many different sessions of Congress. But it's a problem that I think we as a country need to recognize and, and I think we're going to have to deal with it in short order. Second issue that I think we're going to have to deal with is what do we do in terms of developing and incentivizing technological innovation and productivity? You know, if you go all the way back through the history of this country, you can start with the cotton gin and you can go with, with the, the assembly line, the silicon transistor, this Internet that we keep talking about. American entrepreneurs have continually invented new ways to enhance productivity and to accelerate economic growth. And that's essentially what productivity is. You can see really what happens within the context of communication networks again. Every time there's been a new communication technological revolution, it's introduced a whole new level of commercial velocity into American commerce. Who in here had a cell phone in the early 1980s? Did you, Lucy? It wasn't that Android, was it? The big old brick, wasn't it? Not many people had one. They were very, very expensive. 
But as the price point for these devices came down, it didn't take long for everybody in this room to now have a, a mobile device. And why do you carry that? It's productivity. Productivity gain. You do not get prosperity without productivity. That's a standard equation as well. Think of the Internet. I think it's probably been the greatest productivity enhancer that we, I can remember in my lifetime in this country. Probably more so than the personal computer itself. You can consider Amazon, eBay, Google. These companies, 16 years ago, not one of them existed. Today, their combined market cap is a quarter of a trillion dollars, trillion with a T. Mobile broadband has literally transformed how companies operate and how businesses are operating today. And we're in the process of building this capability out. It's, it's transforming how government, education, and healthcare services are getting delivered. And as I mentioned, all these new communication capabilities require unbelievable amounts of capital investment. And like every business, AT&T, before we make any significant capital investment, we do it in the context of how will that investment be regulated. And historically, what we have seen in this country is that the Internet and wireless services have had a very light touch from the regulators. In fact, the regulators have historically said, let the markets work. Let the markets drive competition. Let the free markets decide winners and losers. And I, the results have been nothing short of amazing, if you ask me. In fact, America leads the world when it comes to Internet investment, the amount of dollars put into this technology. The U.S. enjoys the broadest choice of wireless services and devices. We consume more wireless service than anybody else in the world. We have the lowest price for wireless service of anybody else in the world. But if you hadn't heard about it, as I mentioned, the government is looking at regulating these services. And when you think about regulating a market like this, it just causes me to ask two really basic questions. And the first is, what are you trying to fix with the regulation? You know, exactly what's broken. You know, we're paying the lowest prices in the world, using the most in the world, and doing the most innovation in the world. What problem are we trying to fix? The second question I just have to ask is what is the likely outcome of additional regulation? Do we think the likely outcome is more investment? Do we think the likely outcome is more innovation? Do we think the likely outcome is more jobs, or do we think it's less? I happen to be uh, biased, but I, my personal opinion is the answer to that question is fairly clear. Then the last issue, if you know, we succeed in getting the right public policies in place, begin to attract capital investment, and we continue to drive innovation and jobs, we have to ask ourselves if the U.S. is making progress in developing a world-class competitive workforce. And that brings me to the final issue that I want to just talk briefly about here this morning or this afternoon. That's this high school dropout crisis that we're experiencing here in the United States. Every year, more than 1.3 million kids, that's about a third of the kids, will drop out of our public high schools. And if you go to the African-American community and the Hispanic community, that number is, pushes up to 50%. And I don't have any way of characterizing that other than that's just a national tragedy and it's a disaster waiting to happen. I think it's a significant threat to our long-term success and productivity as a nation, especially our competitiveness. And if, if we don't prepare our kids to be successful in this modern workplace, 
we're going to continue to lose ground to places that do and that place a value on this. And, that, and that's why we have to, as a, as a country, address this dropout crisis. And, and I know I look around this room, and I know a lot of you, and I know many of you are involved in enhancing and improving the educational process, and I take my hat off to you because I really can't think of anything more important for us as a country right now. And two years ago, we as a, a company, AT&T, made a concerted effort in this area. And in fact, we launched our largest educational initiative ever. It's a, it's a $100 million initiative towards addressing the high school dropout crisis. It's our Aspire program. And uh, we're doing a lot with this. The bulk of this money is going to schools and nonprofits that are already doing a lot in this area, and they need money to help them scale the success that they're having. But we're going beyond just money. I, I really believe that if, if you want to engage and move the needle on this issue, there has to be personal involvement and personal commitment, and we're trying to engage our 300,000 employees at AT&T. And so we have uh, joined with Junior Achievement and have made a commitment, and we're well down the road on job shadowing 100,000 kids across the country with AT&T employees. You know, the reason a lot of kids drop out of school is that they just don't see the relevance of what they're doing day in and day out in school. And that's what this programming is about. You know, with job shadowing, what, we, what we're finding is you're helping the kids connect the dots between what they do in school and the application of what they do in school into real-world jobs and real-world environment at a high-tech company like AT&T. And it's having an effect. It's changing the attitudes. The kids that we bring in, 99% of them, who participate say that graduating from school is really important to their future. So keeping our kids in school, it's critical. It's critical because, I mean, let's face it, these young people represent the future of, of who America is and what America will be. So these are just some thoughts on American competitiveness, some thoughts on where my head is and some of the areas where I believe we have to bring focus and we have to bring attention and we have to move the needle if we want to keep America at the top. How we do in these areas will determine what our future is in the long term. They'll determine whether we continue to attract new capital into the United States. If we continue to do innovation and technological advancement within the United States, and if we continue to develop this world-class workforce that I think is really critical to attract businesses to the United States. If we can move the needle, I feel really good about where we as a country can go and uh, stop losing market share, as I like to say. So. With that, I appreciate your time, and, and Peter, I'd be glad to take questions, or Bob. One of these students, right? Randall, as mentioned, the uh, students uh, get to go first, and one of their questions is, we know that cell phones are multifunctional now. We can do everything from surfing the Internet to downloading and listening to music as well as watching television. What do you believe will be the next wave of innovation with cell phones? Um, video on steroids. And, uh, I mean, you've, you've listed the, the key areas. <clears throat> and one thing I tell people is I don't prognosticate a lot on what the next new sexy thing is going to be. What we do is try to put out there the functionality and the capability and then turn the market loose and watch what happens. If uh, it had been handed to me developing 100,000 applications to run on an iPhone, I would have never thought of that. 
But uh, you, you go and you just cruise through those applications on iTunes and you, and you look at some of the stuff that's out there and the things that are taking off, not many people could have forecasted that. But so one of the things we fully anticipate is that video will go to a different level on these devices. And we, uh, we're so convinced of this that over the last couple of years we've entered into government auctions and we've bought companies and we've spent somewhere in the tune of $9 billion dollars for, in fact, I was just in a meeting with this guy right here. This guy has spent, with a green tie on, has spent $9 billion of AT&T's money on air. Closer to 10, he says, on air. Uh, and and I, the spectrum is what we're talking about. And when you're offering wireless service, you know, you make a phone call or you browse the web over a wireless device... It's going through Spectrum, and you have to own Spectrum to offer these kinds of services. And so we are sitting here right now. We're looking at where the iPhone is going. We look at the, the introduction of the iPad, which is definitely coming, and we're looking at the consumption and the bandwidth that's going across these wireless networks, mobile broadband. You heard me say that a few times. We said we're going to have to have a whole lot more of this Spectrum, this air, if you will. And so we've invested a lot of money in these airwaves, this, this spectrum, to accommodate what we see happening in the future, bringing more and more video and more and more broadband capabilities to these wireless devices is really critical, and we're spending a whole lot of money on bringing that to pass. Uh, a similar question, uh, what will be the involvement of AT&T in the mobile payments business? That guy's here somewhere, too. I saw him a minute ago. In fact, it, if you're selling anything or you're looking to do anything within AT&T, the person is somewhere in this room. I think I've seen them all. Uh, actually, I, it's, to be, it's to be determined. And if, when you talk about mobile payments, just to help frame it, you can tell students are asking these questions, right? Think of that as your credit card, right? And uh, you go to make a purchase. Well, it doesn't really matter what it is, but this becomes your basis for making the payment. And there are a lot of different ways you can do that. You know, you can swipe. You have technology here where you swipe it across a device in the Walmart or wherever. Or, you know, you can do short messaging to accommodate this. And then you start to think of things like, if you're on the selling side of the equation, couponing, sending coupons to this device. And you can have a barcode come right up on here, and they can literally scan it with a, the point-of-sale register and inside a Walmart or wherever. And so uh, you, you probably saw an announcement. Wasn't it? Yeah, there was an announcement. Uh, I can't remember if it was an announcement or a leak. Should I confirm it or not? <laughs> I think you need somebody else up here. <laughs> there, was a, there was a piece in the paper you may have seen uh, where there's a consortium that had been entered into by a, a few wireless companies on what platform should we all utilize? Because we believe there's a big opportunity here and that this is the way people will want to conduct commerce in the future. And so we fully anticipate that we'll be a major participant in that market. Randall, as you know from personal experience, Dallas is pretty aggressive about trying to get corporations to move here. I have a question that probably came from Tom Leppard, and it is, what does Dallas need to do to have AT&T Mobility relocate from Atlanta to downtown Dallas? <laughs> I got this quote from a guy at Dallas Country Club. It's just money, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Dallas probably doesn't have enough. <laughs> no, 
No, we have uh, our mobility business is a huge business. It's a $50 billion a year revenue business, and there's a lot of infrastructure attached to that, and it's pretty well entrenched in the Atlanta area, so it'll probably be staying in Atlanta. No harm in asking. <laughs> Uh, could you comment a bit on your green initiatives at AT&T, environmental initiatives? Yeah, we, uh, we're doing a lot in this area. I, I, I start with the greatest green initiative we have are selling our products and services because our products and services, you know, afford people the opportunity to, you know, get off of airplanes, reduce travel, work from home. You know, you can go on and on. We have, uh, when we moved here, we went through a, an effort to put telepresence. Everybody know what telepresence is? I mean, it's, uh, I, I tell people it's technology. It's so good that it's creepy, right? It's, uh, it's, a high, it's full life-size, high-definition video screens and high-fidelity high video that goes with it. And we have installed these all over the world now. And uh, it has cut my travel by 40% in terms of, you know, what I need to do to get around. My Monday morning staff meetings, the guy in Atlanta, um, I, he never comes to, to Dallas for the Monday morning staff meetings. He's in Atlanta. My guy that runs uh, the AT&T Enterprise, Enterprise Business Solutions up in New Jersey, he is in New Jersey. Jim Sacconi, who runs the D.C. offices, he is in uh, Washington, D.C. John Stanky's in Dallas. That is my staff meeting on Monday morning. And the technology is so good. I mean, it really is impressive. If, if you and I are having a video conference, you know, we can interrupt each other. I mean, the, the voice is that instantaneous. And so it's, it's great technology. Think about what that has done for travel. It's, I think it's very important. We have also announced, and I actually this effort came about as a result of a, a, a visit to me from T. Boone Pickens. We came here to Dallas, and he was really pushing me on moving our fleet to natural gas. And I told T. Boone, you help me get infrastructure, you know, we'll, we'll begin to move to natural gas. And don't say anything like that to T. Boone unless you're serious, right? <laughs> and he's been doing some work with us. And uh, so as a result, we've made a commitment to move 15,000 of our fleet to alternative fuel over the next 10 years. It's about a little under $600 million commitment that we have made to, to move our fleet to uh, to alternative fuel vehicles, whether it be hybrid or natural gas. Natural gas will be the lion's share of what we're doing. But I could go on and on. We have a number of initiatives in this regard, uh, not the least of which is energy conservation. Peter, you probably know. How many square feet of space, office space do we have around the country? It's uh, millions of, of uh, feet of office space around the country. You go to our San Ramon office, which is a huge complex from one end to the other. It's a, a building that's built like this. From one end of each of those to the other is a quarter of a mile. We have solar panels on top of that, and we are uh, basically producing electricity to, to heat and cool that facility with solar panels. And we have windmill energy that we're, that's uh, or windmill technology that's producing energy for us in Austin. So it's it's a broad effort. I was going to save this one for last, but it is a follow-up on one of the comments you just made, and this person was so proud of it they signed the question. When are you going to put the airlines out of business with high-def video conferencing, given your remarks about American Airlines? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I doubt we ever put them out of business, and we don't want to put them out of business because they're a big customer of ours. <laughs> but, I mean, it, you know, the... Uh, the issue with things like telepresence, well, what I love most about telepresence 
is, is not that it gets me off the airplane. That's an important part of it. You'll never replace the need to have face-to-face meetings with folks. What I love is what it does to the pace of business. And, you know, you go back a couple of years ago, and if I needed to have a face-to-face meeting with my guy who runs our mobility business in Atlanta, and he'd want to have his marketing guy in there, and he'd probably want to have his finance guy in there, and we'd start setting up a meeting. And by the time we could get everybody in the same place, you're looking at least, you know, a week to two weeks out. Now with this technology, we have that meeting that afternoon. And I'm not exaggerating. The pace of business just picks up. And the the materials, the ability to exchange materials is just as good as if you're face-to-face. And and so it just really, I I call this commercial velocity, right? And that's what our technology, at the end of the day, that's all we do is we try to speed up commerce. And mobile payments, you know, the the gentleman that asked the question on on the cell phone and, and telepresence, and I can go on and on. What all of this does is speeds up commerce. And by the way, if you speed up commerce, what do you do? You get more commerce. And what does more commerce mean? That means economic growth. And more economic growth means prosperity. I mean, that's, the, that's kind of the virtuous cycle that we like to believe we're at the very heart of. And so we're trying to speed up commerce and drive economic growth. And you've seen that play itself out over, over the years. From your perspective and based on what you're hearing, how do you think the U.S. economy will perform this year and next year? My... Uh, own candid assessment right now is we're not expecting anything robust this year. Uh, the um, fourth quarter, you know, was, was uh, supported by uh, economic stimulus and government spending. Um, sitting here talking to, you know, our, uh, one of our uh, Congress people, Royce West, here, and we're talking about the, the deficits we're looking at here in the state of Texas as some of the stimulus money begins to go away. And we're not anticipating any robust economic growth here in the U.S. We, we think we could have some modest growth this year. Next year, frankly, is a wait-and-see year for us. I, uh, I hope we begin to see businesses invest again. You know, AT&T, we've stepped up, and, and we're going to invest in the U.S. next year. We're stepping our number up by $2 billion dollars. We're hoping to see other businesses step up and invest because if you don't begin to get the business investment, you will not get sustainable job creation. And you're not going to get what I'll call sustainable economic growth without the job creation. And so right now we're not seeing that real stimulant that uh, is is going to drive any kind of sustained economic robust growth. So we're looking at kind of low, you know, economic forecasts, low growth forecasts, and we've kind of built our, our budgets and our forecasts around those. You alluded to AT&T's program to help alleviate the amount of dropouts that we have in our schools. If you were an education czar, and I know that term is used loosely these days, but if you were a head of education, what's the one thing you'd like to see done differently in American schools K through 12 to try and reduce the amount of dropouts that we have? I'll give you two things. Um, the other shoe just dropped, didn't it? <laughs> I'd like to give you two things. I uh, First and foremost, it's, um, you hear people talk about the, the problem are teacher unions and so forth, and you can't get the performance and the accountability out of teachers. I, just, I, I, I don't accept that. Uh, I, I uh, happen to manage the largest labor union in the United States, and you've got to performance manage. And you have to set expectations and manage those expectations. And I don't think that we 
have done a good job of setting those expectations and then managing to those expectations in our school systems here in the U.S. And so it's not just the teachers. I think the administration is somewhat uh, assumes some of the responsibility for this. But I think we, the public, assume responsibility for this because we're not giving our administrations the cover they need to performance manage. And I think our legislators have have some say in that as well. I look at uh, Washington, D.C., and Chancellor Ray, who runs that education system there. Now, this is a a school system that was a bit of a mess, and and this woman steps in, and I'm telling you, it's just performance management that she executed on in Washington, D.C., and she is getting results. And and you're seeing tangible, verifiable results just by setting expectations and managing performance. So I, I think that is one... You know, Royce, we don't need a new law for that, right? We need air cover. We need support. But we don't need a new law for that. Let's get out there and performance manage this. There's another that anytime you have something that is a big mess, and our education system, I think, is somewhat of a mess, one variable can fit, cure a lot of ills. And I've seen it play itself out in my industry, and that is introduce competition. And I don't think we should be afraid of introducing competition. Competition can... can uh, have an effect of raising everybody's performance and, and everybody's uh, capabilities in an environment like this. And so we have seen, you know, we, we uh, support a lot of charter school programs and, and KIPP academies and so forth because it's interjecting competition into the, into the process. And you interject competition, you drive performance up invariably. Randall, I think given your schedule, we have time for one more. Could you comment briefly on AT&T's move to Dallas and what Dallas needs to continue to do to encourage and get other corporations to make a similar move? Sure. It's, uh, the move, first of all, has been a, a raving success. I am very, very pleased with what we have experienced in Dallas in a number of regards. You know, One of the main reasons we came here was access to travel. That's really, really important. Where's Jeff? Jeff, keep it up, all right? Uh, and access to air, air, air traffic and, and so forth, and so that you can get in and out of just about anywhere in the world, you know, in one-day flights and so forth. So the, the air travel access is really, really critical. Uh, access to talent as well. You know, what we have experienced moving here in terms of being able to find world-class talent, and uh, when we moved here, we obviously lost a lot of people. We had some turnover. We were able to to hire at a really high level people to come into the workforce, which is really, really critical. And so when, when you think about companies wanting to, to move here, and I think I can't remember who I told this to, Royce, I believe it was. When we decided we needed to move out of San Antonio, condition number one, though, was it had to be in Texas, all right? <laughs> because Texas is the environment that you want to operate in in corporate America. From... And that's, that's from a, a number of regards, whether it, you know, it be tort reform or whether it be taxation, low taxation. It's a business-friendly environment. By the way, Dallas is a very, very business-friendly environment to operate in. And those things are all very, very important. And, and so uh, just you know, kind of keep doing what you're doing. And, and all the, the points I made about the U.S., you're in a competitive environment. You're competing for jobs. You're competing for capital. Bring that down now to a micro level, the United States of America. Texas, you're competing for capital. You're competing for jobs. You're competing for investment. Don't ever miss that. And, and those states that have kind of lost touch with that are the ones that are struggling right now. And so that would be my counsel. 
Randall, as a small token of the World Affairs Council's appreciation for your coming today, Jim Falk has asked me to present to you a World Affairs Council tie. Hey, look at that. <laughs> Not much. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.